Hardy's signature Frisco burger and Frisco breakfast sandwich are the kind of goodness people drive across town for. Classic favorites on a toasted sourdough bun. Only at Hardy's. Goodness in the making. Participation may vary. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding expectations, simplifying lives, and establishing legacies that last for generations. Leverage their exclusive network of experts to help achieve your personal and professional financial goals. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect to a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Always grateful you decided to spend some time with us. I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker, back after a week off. And we are ready to roll. You want to reach out to us, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook. We've been putting up a lot of cool graphics and stuff some folks have been helping us with. Also, MurdochPodcast.com and MattHarrisPodcast at gmail.com. And we would love it if you'd rate the episode and share it and get us a little follow or some more subscribers. So, Seton, we have had some motions come down, which we're going to get to a lot of the things in these motions about evidence and the back and forth the attorneys over this murder trial, which by the way, was moved up a week. And we want to start with this cousin Eddie polygraph. Now we know it exists now because Alex attorneys are Putlin and Griffin have requested the results of this. Give, give me and us the story about what's going on with this polygraph test for cousin Eddie. Right, so the defense team filed a motion to compel to get the results of this polygraph test. And one thing that they put in their motion was that some of the responses indicated deception. So the questions that were asked according to this motion that indicated some sort of deception were, did you shoot either of those people at the property on Moselle Road? was the first one. The second one was, did you shoot either of those people on the property on Moselle Road last June? The third one was, were you present when either of those people were shot at the property on Moselle Road? So, and there was a picture in this motion of a spike. They have a picture of the polygraph being administered, and you can see the screen of the examiner that shows a spike. We don't know. It's not a video, so we don't know for sure the exact question. Right. And I also wonder how they got this, this picture and how they even knew, if it wasn't produced to them, how they even knew that there was this polygraph test. And the polygraph was conducted in May of 2022, correct? Right. And that was a question that we've received from some people is why did it take so long for them to administer this test? So let's talk to John about that later. Yeah, yeah. Because it was May uh, and it was the previous June when the murders took place. But maybe the cousin Eddie wasn't on the radar. I don't know. It was almost, wasn't he? It was almost a year after the deaths of Maggie and Paul. You know, yes. Just a just a month shy. And cousin Eddie edited the picture the Labor Day of Labor Day weekend of 2021 with the attempted suicide murder thingy on the side of the road. They're also requesting records after 
after the murder-suicide thing, they did search Eddie's home on September 7th of 2021. And another thing that they're requesting in this motion to compel is the evidence that was collected during that search. And we're going to go through all of the things that they're requesting, or a lot of the things they're requesting, with our legal analyst, John Snyder, in a bit. But we're going to set up our interview with our polygraph expert. We want to give you some of, these are direct quotes, I guess, in the motion, right, Seton? Yes, it is. So the question was, what do you know already about Paul and Maggie's death? This was to Eddie Smith, Cousin Eddie. He responded, I heard that Maggie had a thing going on with a groundskeeper, which I never met him, don't know his name, and Paul, as in Paul Murdoch, went down into one of the barns and caught him. He got upset and then went and got his rifle and was hollering and screaming at his mama, was running, and she fell down and she got up. He shot her in the ass and the bullet come out the top of her head. Then he turned to the groundskeeper guy, but the groundskeeper already went to his truck and got a shotgun. And I am reading off of the motion, so that's how Eddie presented it. It's disturbing. Yes, definitely disturbing. This groundskeeper has been mentioned in... Reddit forums, things like that. Yeah, early on, there were a lot of rumors about this groundskeeper and that he, you know, had been had a conflict with Alex, some sort of physical altercation, and that he had been fired, and just just rumors. Um, I did find it odd that he just brought it up. You know, what do you know, and why he brought this rumor up? It just seemed somewhat strange to me. Except the question was, what do you know already about Paul and Maggie's death? So he's telling everything that he believes to be true, things that he heard. At least that's what his version of it would be, right? He said, what do you know about it? Oh, here's all the things I heard. I'm spilling my guts. Because Eddie might be at this point, they're saying, tell us everything. And if you're telling us the truth, you're getting a break, right? Right. So they tell us everything you know about the Paul and Maggie's death. So he spills this whole story, which was not a secret amongst people in the community. That rumor was out there. And I want to go back to something that Cousin Eddie said, Eddie Smith said in this motion. He says, but the groundskeeper already went to his truck and got a shotgun. Now, the implication is, to me, is that the groundskeeper then went and shot Paul. At least that's what Eddie is leading us to believe the story is. And the motion doesn't say one way or the other, and maybe they don't know whether that question and when he offered up this information indicated any sort of deception. And if Cousin Eddie's story is true, or at least investigated, they need to talk to the groundskeeper because he may have committed a crime or self-defense or whatever the case may be, but he certainly has to be interviewed. We're going to get to a whole bunch of things in the motions in a second, but since we started with this big news about Cousin Eddie and the polygraph. It's time to bring in an expert on lying. Dr. Christian Hart, a professor of psychology at Texas Woman's University, where he is the director of psychological science program, the director of the Human Deception Laboratory, holds a master's degree and PhD in experimental psychology. 
His research focuses on lying and deception, and he teaches courses in deception and forensic psychology. His book is Pathological Lying, Theory, Research, and Practice, and he has a forthcoming book, Big Liars, with the American Psychological Association Press. Hello, Dr. Hart. Hello. Glad to be here. Well, my first question is, uh, when you're in a, I don't know if you're married or not, but when you tell somebody that you are in charge of a deception laboratory and you teach <laughs> courses in deception, do people go, ah, is this guy telling me the truth? Uh, yeah, well, I, I am married and, and certainly my wife's friends have all asked her that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would imagine every time you say something, you're, you're, do you think that you could be, if you wanted to put this knowledge to uh, an evil way, we'd be able to pull off lying better than most? Uh, yeah, I suspect so. Um, you know, I'm familiar with all the research about how people typically um, root out and detect liars. So, fortunately, I guess I'm not in a position where I find myself called upon to lie very often. So, <laughs> I'm just speculating here. But, uh, yeah, I imagine I could probably uh, be above average at least. Well, let's get to the polygraph. It's big in this uh, case that we're talking about. Let's start with a little bit of the history of the polygraph, how it came to be. And I understand it's like 100 years old. Yeah, so it's a 100-year-old um, psychophysics measuring technique. And essentially, um, you know, people have had this notion that there are physiological changes when people are, are lying or otherwise being dishonest, you know, sweating, you know, behavioral changes, like changes in eye contact and so forth. And so about 100 years ago, um, there's this kind of gradual buildup of, uh, of different techniques being brought together that can measure things like blood pressure and the electrical conductivity of the skin and, and breathing rate and packaging it all together into this set of instruments that can be used to not necessarily detect lying, but to detect the physiological changes that people uh, assume uh, co-occur with lying. What type of physiological responses has the lie detector test looked for over time? Okay, so the the cardiac related measurements were the the first ones to be introduced, and and there have been a number of observations that people's heart rate and blood pressure tend to change with their psychological state. So if someone gets like psychologically uh, or emotionally aroused, like if they're afraid or if they're suddenly surprised. There's uh, consistent changes in heart rate and consistent changes in blood pressure. And these are associated with the fight or flight response that humans and other animals have. You know, when we're confronted with a threat in our environment, our, our brain detects this threat and prepares our body to either uh, confront and deal with this threat or to flee from the threat. And so there's a number of changes that occur Um that the basically make us more capable of pulling that off. And so generally when people um, experience a threat, their blood pressure increases, their heart rate increases, um, blood is kind of diverted away from the extremities and, and toward the, the core, the, the, the you know, chest cavity, the brain, and so forth, all the parts that are most necessary for getting the freaking job done in times of urgency. And so with that knowledge, um, a number of individuals uh, started uh, trying to use these measures of changes in cardiac activity to detect lying. 
the assumption being that if people are being uh, interrogated, for example, they're going to be especially fearful when they're being interrogated about um, some act for which they might be guilty. And there is some pretty solid evidence that, in fact, those changes do occur, those psychological changes, and then also um, along with those, the cardiovascular changes. But, you know, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Like, I know that if someone confronts me, and even if I didn't do it, whatever mm-hmm. I'm being accused of, I do feel like I'm in fight or, or, or flight, but I'm not necessarily guilty, but I'm reacting in a way that my physiological measurements are going wackadoodle. Is, is that a problem when trying to determine if it's a lie or they're just uh, being defensive? Yeah, no, that's a, exactly one of the key problems with the polygraph is we're detecting physiological changes and we're making inference of, inferences about the causes of those physiological changes. And so if you're experiencing fear and anxiety, that's what we're measuring. But what's the ultimate cause of that fear and anxiety? And for some people, it's because I actually did, you know, murder my neighbor or something like that. And for other people, they're afraid of being accused of being uh, of murdering their neighbor, even though they haven't. And so the, the problem with the polygraph is ultimately that we can't discern exactly why these changes in, phys- in physiology are occurring. Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm accused of murder, I mean, I, I just think about it. My hands are clammy. I would, I, I would definitely be someone. I feel like I would fail every question. Well, then you have a cool as a cucumber, and you mentioned the, the, the guy who was accused of being a spy and passed all the polygraph tests, but right. he was guilty. To, to explain that story in a little summary. Okay, so that's the case of Aldrich Ames. Um, He worked for the CIA. He was a CIA handler for many years, and that that means that he, you know, worked to recruit and and maintain spies that were um, presumably, you know, giving us secrets uh, about uh, the Soviet Union. And at, at some point in his career, he decided to sort of switch teams and he started providing uh, information to the Soviet Union. He knew he was going to be given polygraph tests because the CIA knew there was a mole amongst them. And so they started, uh, you know, kind of directing their attention to a number of people, him being one of them. And he actually went to his uh, his uh, Soviet handlers and said, hey, I'm going to have to take a, a polygraph and I'm really worried I'm going to fail. What should I do? He was looking for some sort of countermeasures he could use. And they basically said, don't worry, all you need to do is relax. (laughs) And so he went in. It turns out that there's research uh, on the polygraph that suggests that the driving factor that causes guilty people to be detected is their belief that the polygraph works. And if you can just show people evidence and convince them that the polygraph is fallible and it's perfectly um, within within most of our abilities to to defeat the polygraph, that people tend to um, tend to actually perform quite well, and, and by that I mean they, they tend to pass the polygraph even when they're guilty. I was watching a true crime thing not too long ago, and I, the people that were going to go take the lie detector test took some sort of like Valium or something, some medication. And w- does that work? Have you heard about that working? Do people do that? I've I've heard uh, various kind of anecdotal yeah. claims about that. You know, one of the problems with with using a, a drug that would suppress overall physiological activity is 
is the overall physiological activity is not what the polygraph is measuring. What it's measuring is differential mm-hmm. physiological changes when you're asked uh, about um, sort of non-relevant questions versus relevant questions. And so the most common technique is called the uh, comparison question technique. So if you're going to take a polygraph in the United States, that's almost certainly the variant that you'll be given. And what happens in that technique is the the polygraph um, administrator has an interview with you before you're ever hooked up and asks you a number of questions. And and let's just say you're you're accused of of, uh, a theft, for example, Um, accused of like embezzling some money at your workplace. And so what they do is they interview you and say, did you embezzle money? And of course, you'd say, no, you Mm -hmm. lie. And they say, let me let me ask you this. Have you ever stolen anything? And most people in that situation, even if they had, they'd be inclined to say no, because they don't want to seem like the type of person who's a thief. Oh. But it turns out that that most people have stolen something in their lives. And so if they say no, the assumption is they're probably lying about okay. that. Okay. So now what happens is you get hooked up to the polygraph and you're asked a series of questions. One of them being, have you ever stolen anything in your life? to which you say no, and it's probably a lie for most people. And then you're asked, did you embezzle the money from your workplace? And then what the polygraph administrator does is looks at the difference in physiological responding between how you answer those two questions. If you actually embezzled the money, you're probably going to have a much stronger response to the embezzlement question than to the, have you ever stolen anything? On the other hand, if you didn't embezzle the money, you're probably going to have a much stronger response to the question about whether you've ever stolen something in your life as opposed to the embezzlement I get question. It. Yeah. What exactly is the guilty knowledge test? The guilty knowledge test is a, another variant of the polygraph um, process. It's much less uh, widely used in the United States, but that essentially what it capitalizes on is this idea that if you've committed a crime, you have special knowledge of that crime. So, for instance, if you committed a murder, you know what the murder weapon is. And then now what I can do as the polygraph administrator is I can sit you down and I can ask you questions or show you pictures. And I can and I can essentially say, um, what was the murder weapon? Was it a knife? Was it a gun? Was it a candlestick? And <laughs> when you hear or see the, the, the actual weapon, you're going to have this elevated physiological response. Now, if you, if you weren't involved in the crime, then your physiological response should essentially be equal to all three items because obviously there's no reason why one would cause any change in your psychological state. Gotcha. Well, there's a different couple studies. One that has the accuracy of the polygraph to be 87%, I believe, and another one was like 75%. So what is the bottom line on the accuracy of a polygraph? Uh, that's a, a tough question to answer. Okay. So it, and part of the problem is, is it depends on who you ask. Um, the polygraph industry, that is all of the people who are licensed to administer polygraphs in the United States, they have an industry group. And they tend to be the ones who do most of this research. <laughs> and what, they'll, what they will tell you is the, the polygraph has typically above 90% accuracy. Now, obviously, there's concerns because there's a vested interest in that number being high for that group. And so a number of, of, uh, of independent groups have evaluated the evidence. 
um, uh, one of them being the, the Federation of American Scientists and another one being the National Academy of Sciences. And the National Academy of Sciences, they kind of did what's considered the gold standard analysis. They, uh, they wrote this. Uh, they got 14 leading scientists that were not at all um, involved in the, in the community as far as uh, receiving um, funding. And they ended up writing a, an almost 400-page book summarizing their findings. And what they concluded was the accuracy rate is probably somewhere in the 75% range. Now, oh, wow. that, that's better than, than just uh, random guessing. And mm -hmm. it's better than we can do just making our own gut judgments. But it's far uh, less than the accuracy that we would expect to have if we're going to make some you know, determinations about someone's ultimate guilt or innocence. Well, let me ask you this. If one administrator looks at a test that someone just had and then someone else reviews that same test, do they often disagree about the results? Now, actually, that's one uh, area where there's surprisingly uh, um, reassuring evidence that between administrators, there tends to be a, a fairly high level of agreement. I have well, we call it we call it high inner rater reliability, meaning if if I gave you a polygraph test and I showed the the output to ten different polygraph examiners, they would probably all reach agreement about your um, guilt or innocence. I read one of your articles on deception and lying, and you mentioned the fifty fifty chance kind of thing, and experts, so-called experts, I'm not talking about polygraph, but just so-called experts trying to detect lies, and a, a layman, from what I read, are pretty close to equal chance, right? Yeah, so if we, you know, the kind of the, the standard way this type of research is carried out is we'll show people videos of individuals who are either lying or telling the truth. And, and on if, we, if you think if you just flipped a coin, you'd, you'd get 50% of the cases right, so 50-50 accuracy. Um, and for, if we look at people's actual judgments, it's only 54% accuracy, meaning most people are pretty horrible at detecting liars. It turns out that people who are in, uh, law enforcement don't perform any better than college students do on these types oh. of tasks. However, wow. they're a lot more confident in their abilities. In the case that we're talking about, what the polygraph examiner said was that there was an attempted deception. Can you explain what attempted deception means in the polygraph world? Well, with a polygraph, we can't make any determinations about guilt or innocent. You know, that's a, a legal decision. All we can do is make probabilistic statements about whether someone appears to be offering deceptive responses or not. And so when they say, you know, kind of probable deception, what they're saying is, this person scored, had a stronger physiological response to questions about the murder than they did to these more benign comparison questions. And, you know, the, the, whether that's deception or not is an interpretation. Um, you know, one of the problems with, uh, uh, with that type of determination is um, I mentioned that the polygraph has about a 75% accuracy rate. It does a much better job of detecting people who are lying that is correctly categorizing them as lying than it does of correctly categorizing honest people as telling the truth. And so most of the research suggests that um, at a minimum, the polygraph incorrectly classifies 10% of honest people as deceptive. 
and it's probably closer to 20%. Wow. And that's a big number if you're deciding whether you're going to go to prison or not. And that's why you get nervous when you're taking these tests. That's why. Right. But it's not admissible in court, correct? Yeah, there's a lot of variability across countries, but within the United States, um, it's not admissible in federal court and and states that there's varying degrees of its admissibility. Um, And about, um, I think it's it's in the teens. I can't remember the exact number of states that that will admit it under um, with certain stipulations. I believe it's 18 states allow it. The Carolinas happen to not be those states, but uh, so not allowed in the Carolinas. If you do have a pathological liar, do they have a better chance of passing a lie detector test? Uh, the evidence suggests no. Oh, really? Because oh. I always thought the opposite. You know, they'd be so cold that they could get away with it. But no, yeah, they know they're lying. There, there are uh, psychopaths that might be slightly better, and psychopaths tend to have a little bit more of a cold, callous demeanor. But pathological liars are, are simply people who happen to lie a lot, and they lie a lot for a lot of different reasons, but they don't necessarily have kind of a cold, uh, mm. uh, calculating attitude about it. Okay, I want to talk about something else you wrote about in psychology today. And it was, the title was, Can a Murderer Be Identified as Lying on a 911 Call? Can you mm-hmm. give us the, the synopsis of that? Yeah, so there's, um, yeah, there, there's a number of cases of, uh, of people who've actually been involved in a murder placing a 911 call to report the murder. And presumably they're reporting the murder because they think it might, uh, you know, kind of lead... Uh, lead law enforcement away from them as a suspect. After all, why would the murderer call the police? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so researchers, there's been several studies where researchers have examined those calls and tried to discern if there's any kind of tells or signals within those calls that might give away the the guilt or the innocence of the person placing the call. And, um, and so there's uh, been some recent research that I think was was pretty good that found that there's a number of that w- what they did is they got a bunch of 911 calls where it was absolutely clear that the person making the call was innocent based on evidence that was further discovered and then another set of calls where the evidence made a pretty crystal crystal clear the person who had placed the call was actually the murderer sometimes they eventually confessed to the crime and so forth and so they they had these two groups of 911 calls and they analyzed them to see if there were any consistent differences. And they did find that there's not universal differences, not something that absolutely predicted someone's guilt or innocence, but some consistent patterns. Uh, for- Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories. You participate in dialogues. So you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, 
Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. For example, um, people who were uh, who were actually the murderers tended to be overly dramatic and theatrical in their phone calls. Their moods tended to fluctuate a lot during the phone calls. Um, they did small things to kind of obstruct the victim getting help, like unlocking the door and giving accurate directions on how to get there. Um, and they tend to be a lot more defensive and and evasive in their uh, in their comments. On the other hand, people who were who were um, not the murderers tended to be very forthright and candid. They uh, tended to provide very exacting details and seemed to be working hard to help the um, the nine one one responders arrive at the scene and things like that. That's great. Uh- talking with you. More and more I read of your work. I love it. The new book, uh, is that on its way? Uh, yeah, so we have uh, one book, Pathological Liars, uh, Theories uh, and Practice. That's going to, I think that's for on pre-sale right now, but it'll be actually available in three weeks, I believe. And then another uh, book called Big Liars, that'll be out in the spring. Dr. Christian L. Hart, look for his work soon. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hart. All right. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Appreciate Thank it. You. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, our legal analyst, John Snyder, will break down some of the motions that have been going on in this double homicide murder trial. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. He is our legal analyst. He's a former district attorney and a former defense attorney. He's on both sides. He is John Snyder. Thank you, John. Hello, everyone. John John filled in admirably for you last week, Seton. I know. I listened to it. I thought y'all did an amazing job. I really liked it. He pulled in. He has 400 kids, so he drives a a bus that, like a band would have if they were touring the country it's it's, it's, it's a greyhound if, if needed <laughs> it is a it is a it's a, a solid ride but 400 i exaggerate how many is it john kids uh it's at least five <laughs> <laughs> all right let's uh break it down a couple of big motions that uh took place over the last few weeks seaton We have two motions to compel that were filed by Ellick's defense team. The first one was filed on October 14th, and this one seems to be all related to Eddie Smith. They are seeking information related to a polygraph conducted on May 5th of 2022. They want to get all evidence that was collected during a search of Eddie's home on September 7th of 2021. All evidence collected from a search of Eddie Smith's cell phone. They want notes from an interview of Donna Eason, who appears to be one of Eddie's alibi. They want disclosure of all DNA tests involving Smith. And if the state did not collect DNA from Smith and compare it to the DNA from the crime scene, they want to know why. 
Why did Eddie take this polygraph test? Was it some sort of condition of a plea deal? It could be a thousand different things. And one of it might be that his lawyer suggested he do one so that the state wasn't running down rabbit holes and chasing red herrings when he's telling them, hey, here's all the crazy things that have been going on. They probably wanted to be like, okay, buddy, well, you're looking at some serious time here. How do we know you're telling the truth? Okay, that lines up with some questions we had earlier in the episode when we were reading some of the motion talking about Eddie's polygraph and when he went on this kind of rant about the groundskeeper and all these things that happened. The question that was asked is, what do you know already about Paul and Maggie's death? So it wasn't like, are, did you do it? Did you didn't do it? They want to know if he's telling everything, which makes me come to the conclusion that they said, tell us everything and we can do a deal here. Most likely the use of a polygraph here would be his lawyers verifying and letting the state know that what the things you're about to hear are unbelievable. But let, let me tell you to begin with, they are believable. And here's, here's how, you know, here, here's one way to show that a human being that otherwise would have no credibility as a witness has credibility. In this motion that was filed by Alex's defense team, they alleged that some of the responses that Eddie gave to the polygrapher indicated deception. For example, one of the questions that they say in this motion indicated deception was, did you shoot either of those people at the property on Moselle Road? So my question to you is, if this is true, if he seemed to indicate deception, how would that affect his credibility? As a witness, if he's got a reputation for untruth and he's got a reputation for lying to the police, it may be that the defense is going to harp on that to be which Eddie are we getting today? Is this the Eddie that's avoiding criminal prosecution or is this the Eddie that was was our client's, quote unquote, close confidant or or, or co-conspirator? So I it is. The reason this is being attacked is to raise reasonable doubt about anything that he says or does. But John, the lie detector test is inadmissible. So I don't know how they would work it into the actual court proceedings. So is this just publicity and getting the jury pool to think differently of Eddie Smith? Let's say that there the state is in possession of a polygraph test that shows that the that when asked if if Eddie committed the murder and he answers no and it shows the things going off off the rails that would be exculpatory evidence tending to prove that Alec was not involved and so it's it's proper for them to request it but it, it might never, just because evidence is exculpatory doesn't mean it has to be admissible. John, how could they work Eddie's lie detector test results into the trial? I think you could ask a witness 
Have you ever taken a polygraph test? Oh, you can? Yes. Okay. I think you could ask him that, but I don't know that the results would be admissible. So you couldn't call a polygraph, you know, test giver as a witness, as a, as a witness of your case in chief. I want to get back to something Matt was asking. Do you think that this could be some sort of attempt to pollute the jury pool? Are you asking me whether these almost now world famous defense attorneys are trying to create reasonable doubt before a trial begins? <laughs> okay, yes. I mean that was I guess not the smartest question. <laughs> no, it's a smart it's a smart question, but but there there's no there's no doubt I, I, beyond a reasonable doubt that is exactly what these guys are doing because immediately all of us, all of our listeners, everybody out there is going to begin to be like, Ooh, was it Eddie? Okay. Well, if you're asking yourself, was it Eddie at the close of the trial? That's reasonable doubt. Will they ask potential jurors if they are aware of Eddie Smith's polygraph results? These are the ways you might ask it. Uh, Madam juror would, would you be satisfied with reaching a guilty verdict against my client if you knew the state hadn't followed up on other leads? Mad- Madam Juror, could you, um, if you heard evidence that showed that another person was in the same location at the same time but never investigated, would you be able to reach a, a, a verdict of not guilty for my client? for the state failing to meet its burden. You would ask questions like that to before the jury's even impaneled to kind of see, test your, your case theories out in jury selection. In reading this motion, it seems to me that they are saying that law enforcement did not do their jobs. They were laser focused on Alec Murdoch from the beginning, and they didn't really look into anybody else. Is the defense strategy to make the public believe that other suspects we're not looked into. They are doing their job, which has people discussing the possibility that it could be somebody other than their client. And that is the definition of reasonable doubt. Now, all of this is done in a vacuum because we don't know what the state's evidence is. And so all of this literally may be meaningless because the state has such an airtight case that it, it could be. The most famous virtuous person in the world was also at Moselle at the time. And there was no need to look into that person because we found we found the blood splatter. We found the gun with the fingerprints. We have cell phone. Right. We have all these other things that that make it only one person capable of committing this murder. And watching and listening to other true crime podcasts and movies and shows, I don't think the defense saying, hey, they didn't look at this guy, they didn't look at that guy, they didn't look at that guy, is unusual, is it, John? No, not at all. And I think it's I think it's an effective one where somebody as unsympathetic as Eddie Smith has the potential to be involved. I mean, he's already charged with a crime of potential insurance fraud, and he's already charged with a crime for, you know, attempting to, even, even if Alec asked him to shoot him. He still was there. 
I mean, this isn't a guy that you want at Thanksgiving dinner with your family. Let's dig into the October 17th motion. Uh, See, now let's go down some of those things that are not necessarily Eddie Smith type of search for discovery. Right. It's another motion to compel, and they kind of have numbered out the things that they're requesting. The first thing that they request is any and all testing results of Maggie and Paul's clothing, including DNA and gunshot residue. That seems fair to ask for that. And my question, though, is why do they have to ask for it? Why would that not automatically be turned over? It may be automatically turned over, but you would still want to file. You still want to file this motion and make sure that it's on the record that you requested it so that you're not hit with an ineffective assistance of counsel claim later on. It does say under this request, if the state has not conducted any such analysis, the state should be required to notify defense. So they could also say, not only did they not turn over, because there was nothing to turn over, because they didn't do it. Right. And then that is, I think they're saying that's a problem. Why didn't you do this? Yes, that makes sense to me. The second thing they're requesting is results of gunshot residue testing. They want to get specific, the number of particles found on Alex's shirt shorts, and hands. The filing states Murdoch's claim that he retrieved a shotgun while waiting for the EMTs and emergency personnel to arrive. And in the motion, it says only a low number of gunshot residue particles were found on Murdoch's shirt, shorts, and hands. So they want the details, the detailed analysis, and they want to see if there's a uh, transfer particles situation that's consistent with Murdoch's story that, you know, he was just there and went to see his wife and son and the state's theory that he shot uh, Paul at close range with a shotgun. So John is, is this a request that has to be honored? Do they have to be specific about what's in the report? Well, what they've done is they've asked for the, the lab report and they've asked for the bench notes and what bench notes are, are the, are the reflections, recollections, notations, that the that the forensic scientist uses in pulling together their report. And so like we'll see a ballistics, we'll we'll get a ballistics test result. And we'll okay. So that's that's great. But the defense counsel is entitled to the bench notes, which are all the things, all the writings, all the recollections, all the impressions of the technician who did the test before they did their report. So it's it's every every piece of documentation related to the gunshot residue test they they want that. The lab report is not enough because sometimes you'll 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 see like it could also be this. Okay, well that's a defense lawyer is then going to zero in on well madam madam forensic scientist you you were not you weren't sure, were you? It says here in your bench notes. And then she'll say the witness. Oh, that's right. At the time I wrote that, that was prior to me doing X, Y, and Z. So just to get this correct. So the bench notes might be handwritten notes or some sort of dictation before the final report. Is that the basic idea? Correct. Okay. So when you when we see a doctor, the, the most common place would be we're at the doctor's office and we see the doctor talking, dictating doing their notes. That's not the same as the, the lab report or the summary report they send you home with. 
So I think what they're trying to get at is there are only three particles found on is shorts and just very low results. And in this motion, they say most labs do not report a positive finding unless there are at least three particles. And it is potentially consistent with the transfer of particles from a shotgun that he retrieved while he was waiting for the emergency personnel to arrive. And the prediction at the beginning of this whole thing, many people said was going to be battle of expert versus expert. We're finding out through some of these motions that it might be. The other thing of many that they requested, Murdoch's team, forensic analysis of multiple cell phones. And in this they mentioned the AG's office has released hard drives of the phones, but not copies of the forensic analysis. And they want to set a deadline to get some of these things. How much of the AG's case has to be released? I understand analysis and that sort of thing. Do they have to show their hand on everything? Okay, so the AG himself, his lawyers themselves, do not. The investigators' notes, impressions, all of that stuff is subject to Brady and and should be turned over. And my philosophy as a prosecutor was always, I don't have anything to hide because if we if we're bringing a case against you, we better have our evidence. Like you don't, you don't, you don't criminally prosecute somebody on nuance and, and hope. You you do it on evidence, and so there's nothing to hide in a case because you're on the side of truth. That's that's one of the nice things about a prosecutor when they're when they're living up to their duty. Properly. That's the key when they're living up to their duty because we know there's been history through time where uh, the DA's office or certain kind of official hides information and it comes out later hopefully and the case gets overturned what else did they ask for uh seaton they would like the complete autopsy file they want documents and information related to the state's crime scene experts they want documents and information related to blood stain analysis performed or requested by all experts they want the photos of maggie's phone that was discovered on the side of the road after her death they want bench notes relating to forensic analysis conducted in the investigation. They want copies of any and all jailhouse phone calls by the defendant, which the state intends to offer into evidence. Another thing that they are requesting in this motion is polygraph information from Curtis Smith and three other individuals. It makes me think about three names that are right now in jail. Russell Lafitte the banker, and then the two other characters that came up in the last few months, Rivers and Roberts, who were charged with various things, but during their hearing, the DA Creighton Waters mentioned a drug tie between Rivers and Roberts and Alec Murdoch. We also, they're requesting audio and video from Curtis, Eddie Smith's interviews. This next one that they're requesting was confusing to me. I wasn't sure exactly what this was. The return for Google search warrant number 105. And that was data taken of Moselle and some land near Moselle. Well, and they're saying geofencing data. 
they want to see what requests went out from law enforcement and what response the Google had when they gave it back to law enforcement, including what cell towers were pinged, all the all the you know location data that might indicate whether Alec was was there at the time of the murder or whether Alec was consistent with his testimony somewhere else at the time. They want SLED interoffice emails. They want the Colton County Sheriff's Department and 14th Circuit solicitor's files, including electronically stored information. And the last thing that they requested is body cam information from two individuals, one named Debbie McMillan and another Grant Cantor. My guess would be those are deputy sheriffs that responded to the crime scene. They didn't do any investigation. They didn't, they didn't file any reports, but they were on site. I want to put out that the two names, Seton, were Debbie McMillan. And Grant Cantor. We do not know at this point who they are. We do have a hearing on October 20th at 10 a.m. in Florence in front of Judge Newman to hear these motions to compel. And we also have one other motion that he will consider at this hearing. And that is a motion to strike the alibi defense, which was filed on October 18th by the defense team. And in this motion, it says that the state failed to provide a time that it alleges the murders took place. So, John, what is an alibi defense and what do you make of this filing? Okay, an alibi defense is a defense that says I could not have been the person guilty of the crime because I was somewhere else. And under the law, under under criminal procedure in South Carolina, if I'm intending to use that defense, I have to let the state know that I'm going to use that defense. So what what this motion is, is Harpootlian and Griffin asking the court to not have to tell the state whether they're going to use that defense or not. And the basis for that is that they're claiming that none of the evidence is clear about when the murder took place. So it would be an undue burden on the defense to have to account for the entire you know, two days that it, that it could have been, arguably. So basically, here's the deal. They're saying the prosecution hasn't said the murders were committed between 9 and 9.30. So how do you expect my client to tell you where he was when we don't even know when the murders happened? Exactly. That's exactly. That's, that's a much better summary than mine. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. We have received several listener questions asking us about Maggie's death certificate because it wasn't released. Now, Paul's death certificate was released because they were needing to drop the criminal charges in the boating accident. Will Maggie's death certificate be released? It will be part of the state's evidence, but that's that, that I would imagine that would be the first time that it would be released. Before we let you go, John, uh, Seton received a message from one of the sleuth groups. And this person said, when listening to this podcast, he says, anyone that would be John Snyder says, anyone who has ever had a lawsuit with Alec representing them, should go back and check the records. How would one do that? Would you go to the law firm? Because wouldn't his records show that he paid out? If he did receive more than what he gave his client, how would you go about finding out this information? I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have that on file. John. 
So you would start with the county where the lawsuit was brought and get a copy of the file. And then you would see what the pleadings were inside of that file. And if there were any in there that you had no idea about or weren't aware of, that would be your first step. The second step would be contacting the law firm that represented you and asking them for a copy of your file. And then the third step might be reaching out to the state bar for their assistance and in, in navigating that or calling an attorney that specializes in, in those types of cases. Well, she did follow up. She gave me a few details about it. I guess her husband was involved in an accident about five years ago. It was a hit and run, and they ended up finding the person. His trailer, his lawnmower were destroyed, and he also had some physical injuries, and he only received $9,000, which they thought were pretty low because that didn't even cover the cost of the lawnmower, um, and he did have injuries. So she is looking into it. She has contacted the law firm, and we hope that she can find some sort of resolution. Absolutely. John Snyder, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. John John is out of here, and if you want to reach out to us, you can go to MurdochPodcast.com, Murdoch Podcast Facebook page, or Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. We always are looking for feedback, ways to make the show better, ways that we can become more clear in what we're saying. So feel free and also rate this episode and give us a bunch of stars and share the episode. We'd appreciate that very much. We're always grateful for every listen, and we'll talk soon. Join Hala Taha for actionable advice from the brightest minds in the world on the Young and Profiting Podcast. Author and academic Arthur Brooks on what success isn't. The husband was confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? I turn around to get a look and it turns out to be one of the most famous men in the world. The world tells you that if you are profiting, money, power, pleasure, fame, you're going to be happy. And that's a bogus formula. The Young and Profiting Podcast, wherever you listen. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. 
history so interesting, it's criminal. <laughs>